May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How comfortable are you today? Stuck at home, self-isolating, maybe you're in your tracky decks, or like me, you've got your slippers on. We are at home and comfortable, but in many ways we are uncomfortable. We can't meet in person. We can't shake hands. We can't be there to see the glint in somebody's eye. Or we can't gather together as Christians to raise our voices and admonish one another with the, with the singing in unity. We are blessed with many comforts, but it's a very uncomfortable time to practice our faith. And that's what we are going to see today in our passage when we're looking at Acts chapter 23 verse 12 all the way through to Acts chapter 24 verse 27. We see that practicing Christianity is uncomfortable. This story picks up uh, off the bat of uh, where we have been following through Acts over the last few years. We've made our way through Acts piece by piece. And we've seen reminder after reminder that God will use circumstances that seem problematic, that are uncomfortable to promote and spread the gospel, whether it be persecution, assassination attempts, legal proceedings, mobs. All of them fail to stop the good news about Jesus Christ going out into the world. They all fail to stop people everywhere from becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, of hearing about repentance and faith, of, of the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that is to come. Nothing can stop the spread of God's gospel. So it will, it will be no surprise if we see those, pas- those themes in the passage that we're looking at today. Keep your ears out for them. Our passage follows straight off the bat of some interesting goings-on in the last couple chapters, where, where Paul's been traveling around, church planting and strengthening, and he's come back to Jerusalem after a few years to see his mates, uh, to bring back some donations that he's collected, as he's done several times. So Paul turned up at Jerusalem, and in order not to be a stumbling block to others, he went through some ritual purification and helped others do the same to show people that he would take these customs seriously. So that the only stumbling block would be the message of Jesus Christ. And not whether or not he had gone through the ritual purification. But some people saw him while he was hanging around the temple. And they misunderstood what he had been doing. They, they falsely accused him. Of profaning the temple, and so a mob started to gather. It looked like that you know, Paul was going to lose his life, but the Romans, the Roman soldiers, swept in and plucked Paul out of the of the hubbub, and they they rescued him. Paul got to try and give a defence for what he was doing, but people just wouldn't listen, and the mob continued to grow, and the riot was imminent. So they shuffled him away into the barracks and kept him safe. The next day, he got an opportunity to make a defense before the Sanhedrin so that they could kind of 
figure out what was going on. But again, there was a, a mob, a riot, a ruckus was forming. And so the, uh, the Roman soldiers took Paul back in to the barracks to protect him. Paul was a Roman citizen after all. So with this political heat around, um, and with Paul in prison, that's where our, our story picks up. With uh, Paul, the night that night being encouraged by Jesus Christ, who appeared to him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul's in quarantine. Here we come to the first point, the first point of three. God provides through providence. God has already been providing for Paul through providence, with the Roman soldiers right there ready to rescue. But we're going to see more. We're going to see more of how God provides through ordinary means, using even the anti-God Roman authorities to rescue God's messenger. Now, Paul is squirreled away, and he's, a, he's uh, you know, kept in the, in, the, in the Roman barracks. And while he's there, some of the most dedicated Jews, more than 40 of them, are so keen to kill Paul and deal with this problem, they see, that they have made a vow. They made a promise not to eat until they've killed Paul. And this is a dangerous promise. It's a stupid promise because it means they're faced with three options. Either they succeed in killing Paul and being guilty of murder, or if they fail to kill Paul, they might break their promise and eat, which is a sin like murder. Or the third option is that they fail to kill Paul, but they still keep their promise and not eat food. And then they die of starvation. Any of the three options is a bad one. They've put themselves in a corner between a rock and a hard place. It's stupid. Now, now God allows us to make good, wise promises, you know, like wedding vows, or uh, when somebody dedicates their child and promises to raise them up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. But these kind of vows are rash vows, the kind that we are warned throughout the scriptures not to take. The kind of a vow that Herod took and ended up having to murder John the Baptist in order to keep his promise. Or the promise that Jephthah made to dedicate whatever came out of his house to the Lord as a sacrifice. But then his daughter came out of his house. He was between a rock and a hard place in fulfilling his vow and sinning or breaking his vow and sinning. And it's the same for these guys here. It's better just to follow Jesus' advice and be known as people who do what we say, who mean what we say. So these these fellows need to get their hands on Paul. And like any good action movie, they've got to try and get the package on the move so that they can, uh, so that they can make their attack. So they team up with the local religious leaders. They say, you guys ask for Paul to be brought down so he can face the court of the Sanhedrin and we'll make our move when he's en route. And this is where God's providence comes in once again. Paul's nephew was on hand to hear 
about the plans. And so, by God's most holy, wise, and powerful oversight of all things, his providence, he was able to foil the plot. The nephew is able to report to the Roman tribune, who is in in turn able to subvert the conspiracy. You know, the, the tribune needs to protect the Roman citizen, and he needs to calm the political situation. So, in chapter 23, verse 23... We're told he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So let's just recap that for a second. 200 foot soldiers, 70 cavalrymen, 200 spearmen. That's 470 Roman soldiers to protect one man from 40 Jewish extremists. This is serious stuff, but that night, starting at 9pm, they set out and they, they ride through the night. They chuff Paul off with a letter to the governor, out of the reach of the Jewish mob and the influence of the Jewish leaders. So by God's hand, through ordinary events, interactions and conversations... God had made a way for Paul to be saved. He had saved his life. And it was by providence. By providence that Paul was a Roman citizen. By providence that Paul's nephew heard the plot. By providence that Paul ended up in the presence of the governor. The most powerful man in the region. Ready to talk about Jesus. Providence is that way that God provides in the ordinary matters of life. And that's why we say grace at a meal, because we recognize that even though the meal we eat was grown by a farmer, harvested and packed and processed and put on a shelf in a supermarket, bought by us and prepared in our kitchen, all the bits and pieces are from God's hand. He allows and enables it. He orders the weather to make the plans grow. He helps stabilize our economy to make for good trade. He allows us to take up jobs to pay for the food we buy to put on the table. Everything is intimately connected and intricately connected and only happens within the zone of God's control. So we can say, we come to eat our food, thank you God for this food that you have provided. Just as we can say with Paul in the circumstances that he was rescued, thank you God for rescuing Paul. God's providence through ordinary things provided for Paul. And the thing is that Paul could do nothing. He had to rely wholly on the Lord. The best he could do was tell his nephew to speak to the tribune. He was arrested and helpless. He was helpless to change his situation, but God wasn't. And God used his providence to rescue Paul. The thing is, though, even when Paul was rescued, he was still arrested. God didn't save him from death because he had plans for God. Sorry. God didn't save... Let me start again. God did save Paul from death because he had plans for Paul in Rome, but he didn't save Paul from being arrested. He left him locked up and in the hands of an ungodly man. God's providence doesn't mean that circumstances are always happy or what we would like them to be. And I'm sure you can see how Paul's experience is very much like our own. It reminds us of our lives as Christians. Firstly, we rely on God's providence. 
It is through God's providence that we were born where we were born and received the blessings that we have received. It is through his providence that we've heard the good news about Jesus and that we've all been joined together in this local body of Christians called the church. God has provided so much for us. But that does not mean that the way is always easy. It does not mean that we will not suffer. It does not mean that we will always escape death. At this moment in our lives, it means several things. In God's providence, there is a virus spreading across the globe and separating us from meeting together or seeing our loved ones, embracing them. In his providence, I was essentially let go from my job this week and along with thousands of others across Australia and potentially around the globe. In his providence... There are shares and house prices going down the drain. And in his providence, there will be some who will contract the illness and succumb to it. And we have to take time to consider that. We have to come to terms with that. We have to realize that God gives and God takes away. We sing that. We often sing that here. But do we believe it? You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. God has provided for us abundantly, and at times he removes that abundance. But we know that God does not do it flippantly. He has a great plan in place, one that we can entrust ourselves to. In Paul's case, his imprisonment, we know, is ultimately to share the gospel in Rome. But we've got the privilege of hindsight. We've got the the luxury of being able to see it all from above. But for us on the ground here and now, in 2020, we don't. We don't have that luxury. We can't see the bigger picture. But we entrust ourselves to a God who has a track record of coming through, of of providing, of being faithful, of having a plan that is far beyond what we can ask or imagine. All we can do is be ready to work in uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. God provides through providence, but we should be ready to work in uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. Coming into the second point, we need to be ready to defend You see, Paul was ready to make a defense. After his speedy trip across the countryside, Paul found himself in Caesarea before the governor Felix. And after a few days, uh, some of his uh, accusers came up from Jerusalem. That was uh, some of the the Jewish leaders and what appears to be a lawyer, Tertullus. And when they arrive, the trial gets underway. And like usual in a Roman court case, the accuser gets a chance to lay out the accusation. Paul gets a chance to defend himself. And let's have a look at those details of that accusation. In chapter 24, verses 5 and onwards, it said, We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. 
The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things were so. So, in in summary, the problem that uh, that the Jews are laying out for the uh, governor to judge is that they are saying that Paul causes riots, which is illegal under Roman rule. That Paul doesn't follow a sanctioned religion. You see, in the Roman Empire, you were only allowed to follow religions that were sanctioned, and Judaism was allowed, uh, and otherwise you had to fall into line with uh, you know the Roman pagan religion. But the Judaism got an exception. So they're trying to make this case that Paul is not following a sanctioned religion. And then thirdly, they were trying to say that Paul was profaning a religious space. A big no-no, whether or not you're a Jew or a pagan uh, Roman, you don't go around profaning people's religious space. So it all seems pretty straightforward. These kind of three charges that are being laid before the government. But all of it is fundamentally false. It was untrue. And Paul responds and he counteracts each point. He says, I wasn't causing riots. I was minding my own business. While I was purified at the temple, I'd actually gone out of my way to make sure I was purified. And... He follows the ancient religion, the same religion as the Jews. It it was on account of a difference of theology arising out of this religion with the same prophets and the same law. It was on account of, of this religion that he was on trial. Paul was completely in the clear. So he answered those charges, but then on top of that, The people who actually were the first ones to start accusing him, when the first riot started to break out, when the first mob started to gather, the ones who who were saying that he was profaning the temple, they're not even there to make the charge. How can can this court proceeding uh, take place when the people who were actually accusing him, the actual witnesses, were not there to lay their charge? So the whole court case was ready to fall over in a heap. Felix decides to put it off. He says, oh, we'll wait for Lysias, the tribune, to come up from Jerusalem. So it's a very anticlimactic ending to this defense. We'll just have to wait. Just have to see what happens. And Paul ends up having to wait for a very long time. And even though there was an anticlimactic end to the hearing, we do see some things in this hearing, in this defense, that are an encouragement to us. In particular, that we didn't, don't need to shy away from being open about our faith. Paul could have shushed up about the matter of the resurrection and kind of smoothed it over, but he wanted to make sure that the, that, 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 that the gospel impact was front and center. That this was about the resurrection of the dead. Knowing that Jesus has got his back, Paul can confidently say, you guys have have missed the point, Your, your accusations are baseless, and this is actually about a matter of theology, about the resurrection of the dead, which in turn would lead him to a discussion about Jesus if he got a chance. He He said... It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This was the real crux of the issue. Not whether or not Paul was profaning the temple or stirring up riots. 
It was a matter of faith, and he wanted to make sure that it was in the center. For, for us, not many of us are going to be called in front of a governing official to explain why we have our faith or, or how our faith is legal. But most of us will find ourselves in circumstances where we need to make a defense to someone for our faith with gentleness and respect. We, like Paul, don't need to be afraid. God's providence provides what we need. We just need to be ready to work in the un- uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. Jesus has said, I will be with you. You don't need to worry about what you'll say. I will give you the words to say. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to make that defense? Are you ready to make that defense when your colleague asks you, why do you spend so much time doing church stuff? Are you ready to make that defense when your relative asks you, why are you so set on following these government guidelines about social distancing? Sometimes your defense will be to people who are up for a philosophical chat, they're intrigued, or, or sometimes your defense will be to people who are genuinely confused about why you believe what you believe. But are you ready to make that defense? Are you confident? Do you realize that God has got your back? Now, while we are always hopeful that our listeners will repent and believe the gospel, there is an adversarial nature to our defense. We are out to convince people. We are out to show them the truth. We are out there to challenge the structures and the, and the, and the belief systems of our society. We're out to attack the baseless systems of the world and tear down their temples built on sand. Doug Wilson, an American Presbyterian author, wrote a book called Rules for Reformers. And in it, he, he gives lots of tactical thoughts for how Christians should uh, approach the world which wants to tear them down. But one of them, which I thought is especially prevalent, or relevant, sorry, here... He says, make your adversary live up to his own rules. We, we live in a world where people are trying to tell us that we need to fit into their system. That we need to bow to them and the way that they do things. Well, why don't we use their way to actually undermine their way? Why don't we use their way to make advantage and headway for the gospel? That's what Paul did. He used the system. He attacked the accusations that were coming his way and used it as a platform to talk about matters of faith. He used the system to promote the gospel, even while the gospel is far beyond containment in any system. But what about us? How can we undermine the system? How can we be ready to defend our faith? Well, maybe... The next time somebody says, oh, you're so intolerant, we could ask why it matters so much that we are intolerant. Why are you intolerant of our intolerance? Or or maybe uh, next time somebody is attacking the Christian way of life for children, marriage and sexuality, saying that they're out of date and harm people. Let's have a look at the statistics about how much harm the alternatives do. Or maybe when somebody is trying to silence us because 
We shouldn't talk about religion. Maybe we should ask why people are trying to infringe on our privilege of free speech. Friends, we don't need to be afraid of the world's tactics. They throw these things at us, but they all fall in a heap. Use them to your advantage. We too often think of ourselves like turtles who need to pull our heads in to protect ourselves so we can suffer as little damage as possible. But in reality, we are lions that the world is trying to cage. Don't act like turtles when we are lions. We are dangerous and we have a dangerous saviour who, who comes with the sword of truth riding on a white horse to, to tear down the nations. We are God's people who are part of God's host. We are lions who are prowling around, stalking sin and wickedness to pounce and take it down. The world's psychological warfare makes you think that you are out of date, dumb, superstitious or or harmful to society. Or to use a paraphrase of the Jewish accusers, a plague who stirs up problems everywhere and leads people astray. Brothers and sisters, don't listen to the world's propaganda. The very opposite is true. We are no plague. Instead, we Christians, God's church, are the messengers of light who will bring healing salve of Jesus Christ into the world. We are those who come to undo the problems that our, society, that our society faces. We come to lead people out of confusion and darkness. And we come to do it under the banner of Christ. When we defend our faith, we defend truth. We are dangerous to the worldly culture that we live in. We are bearers of a dangerous message. If the message goes out and Christ's law overtook the wickedness of our world, then the horrid strongholds of this present age would fall. People would be free. Life would be better. Our babies wouldn't cower in their mother's womb in fear of the knife. Our children wouldn't be raised by the state as godless halfwits with no self-control. Our teenagers wouldn't be glued to their screens lusting after the sensual and promiscuous. Our men and women wouldn't need to hide their faith to hold down a job. Our wives wouldn't fear that their husbands are going to run off with a colleague and apply for divorce. Our churches wouldn't be split by petty grievances and the serpent-hearted independent spirit. Our employers wouldn't skimp on their employee wages and our workers would work heartily with a good attitude. Our elderly and our poor would not need to rely on institutions to save themselves from hunger and homelessness. Christ's way is not a plague. It is a vaccine for the illnesses of this world. And it is much better than what this world has to offer. We don't need to act like it's not for everyone. We don't need to act like it's just one option in a sea of options. It is the only option. It is the only way to save us from ourselves. Jesus' death on a cross is for anyone and everyone who would call on her, on his name. And they will always be better for it.
What may come your way for standing up for Jesus, for making a defense? The results are not up to you. But in God's providence, sometimes we suffer for it. You might get sanctioned. You can't talk about that anymore. You might get punished. You have to undergo sensitivity training. You might lose relationships that you value. Your parents, your siblings, or your friends, or even your spouse might cut you off because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. And in extreme cases, you might be imprisoned or killed. Paul had to face off against earthly authorities who kept him locked up on a pretense. But he remained obedient to a much higher authority. He, w- he remained obedient to work in the midst of those uncomfortable circumstances. Because God had his back. You probably won't get to pick the time when you need to make a defense. So all you can do is be ready. Be ready to work in uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. So we come to the third and final point. Paul is quarantined for Jesus. After Felix put off Paul's case, he was given a decent place to stay. He was given his privileges as a Roman citizen to have guests. He was going to be well looked after. But he was still going to be locked up. He was still under under arrest. He was still quarantined. And it was going to go on for a while. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm balking at the idea of being self-isolated for six months. And I've still got the opportunity to go down to the shops or go for a run. But the idea of being quarantined under house arrest for two years... That's a lot. Paul was ready, though. He was ready to work in the uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. We know from history that Paul used his time in lockup in various locations to send letters. He spoke with his guards. He seemed to coordinate mission and church matters from prison. On top of that, Paul got the opportunity to spend more time with Felix and Felix's wife to share the gospel. To share the gospel with the most powerful man in the region. Several times. If we look at 24.24, you see, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So he was this man, Felix, who heard the gospel, and he was alarmed by the implications of the gospel message, but he failed to act on it. He procrastinated and he put it off, hoping that he wouldn't have to deal with it, hoping that Paul might cough up some money for a bribe, maybe? Felix is just like many of us. Who put off thinking seriously about faith. Oh, that's I'll worry about that some other time. You know, I'm not going to die anytime soon. Don't worry about judgment. Or maybe uh, it's just too hard right now. To, there's too many sins that I love. Even some of us as Christians don't want to think too hard 
about our lifestyle and and what it would look like if we were to change our lives to honor Jesus. Nevertheless, Paul in God's providence was stationary, locked up, with a little freedom for two years. God could have done what he did for Peter and sent an angel to let him out of prison, but God had different plans. He kept him locked up for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. And and we find ourselves facing a quarantine of our own. Sure, we're not Paul, we're not imprisoned yet, but we already have some East Gators who are in 14-day quarantine. And all of us have been asked by the government to limit our outside activities to the essentials. We are not able to meet together in person right now and warmly shake each other's hands. We are isolated from one another. Like Paul, we didn't get to choose these circumstances. They have been thrust upon us in the providence of God. So what are we to do? If we are being faithful, we will be ready to work in these uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. But what will it look like? Well, we're still coming to grips with that question. We're trying to figure it out. One thing is for sure, Jesus isn't going on holiday and neither is our discipleship. If we're in lockdown for six months, that doesn't change how we ought to seek after Christ and serve him and follow him. We must consider how we can use these new circumstances, how we can make the best use of the time while we wait. While we wait for Jesus to return or until the end of COVID-19, whichever comes first. But I want to give you some practical thoughts about how you can use your quarantine or your self-isolation to serve Jesus. I've got four thoughts. First, rest. For many of us, the pace of life will slow down a bit with less work, less travel, less social engagements. Use that time to be rejuvenated in Jesus. Spend that extra time in the scriptures or prayer. Listen to the gospel-centered music that you have and meditate on the promises of God. Refresh your soul in the living waters of Jesus Christ. I know that some of us are prone to unhealthy levels of busyness. So take a cue from God's providence. Take a moment to breathe and trust him to look after the world. Next, we should practice obedience. For Australians, following a government order is a foreign concept. We chafe against authority. But right now we are called to follow some strange commands. And we should do it cheerfully. Yes, it may be hard. Even sometimes it might seem a bit pointless from our end. That we're, but we're being subject to our earthly authorities like Jesus wants us to be. Like God calls us to be. And in doing that, we are also loving our neighbours by staying away from them. Don't look for loopholes or opportunities to skirt around the rules. Look for every opportunity to practice obedience, honouring our leaders as we can, and showing the rest of the world what it looks like. We should be the best of citizens. We should not be known as those people who flout the law. And if we are known for contradicting the law or, con- or contravening the law, it should be in important matters, matters that are gospel 
importance. But if the government is not asking us to do anything sinful, then we should be obedient. Even if we don't understand, understanding is a bonus. It's nice to know why we are doing what we're doing, but it's just that. It's a bonus. First things first, we should be obedient. It's a hard place to be in for some of us. I had to make a hard choice this week. We could try and weasel my conscience around what the government had said about staying home if possible. Or I could... I, I, I could I could give in and try and weasel my conscience around what the government has said so that we could go to a party. Or I could be obedient and loving and consistent and stay home. Now, I don't always make the right call when it comes to being obedient. But in this case, I had to make that hard call to stay home and to upset people that I love. Obedience is hard but it is good and God-honoring. Thirdly, in this self-isolation, we still need to love our neighbour. In this strange new time, there is new opportunities and we should be on the lookout for them because the normal ebb and flow of society's interactions and habits are changing. We will be at home mostly, and so will our neighbours, so will our relatives and our friends. Everyone will be in this boat together. So how can you love your neighbours in the midst of this? How can you minister to the other church members? We've already taken our church services and our community groups online, but we need to think about how can we serve others even while we're at home? Do you need to make a habit of regularly calling your friend who lives alone? Do you need to do that grocery run for essentials for that person who's in 14-day quarantine? How can you use your God-given spiritual gifts and abilities to do something from home for your church, for your neighbor, for your family? Some, some creative thinking might be required. One good recommendation that I've heard for loving your neighbor in this time is get takeout once a week. If you can afford it, order some good, healthy food to be delivered. You will be loving your neighbors by staying home You'll be supporting jobs at local restaurants. You'll be buying from local businesses to keep them going. You'll be uh, employing the delivery guy who brings your food to your door. It's just a small way that we can love our community and love our neighbours in these uncertain times. But I invite you to think, what else can you do to love your neighbour in these strange times while being obedient to our governing authorities? But fourthly, my, my encouragement to you is to use the time to practice spiritual disciplines. I'm sure that we all have those spiritual disciplines that we have been wanting to start for ages, but we just never seem to be able to find the time to do it. You, you know, those, you know, it might be prayer, you might want to try fasting, or just keep up on the scripture reading. Maybe it's memorizing scripture, maybe it's reading books that are good for your faith. Maybe it's time to start family devotions so that you are regularly praying and teaching the Bible to your kids. For me, I'm always trying to solidify habits of daily reading and prayer. Perhaps this change of pace will be a grace from God to help me get that locked in for a lifelong habit. 
I challenge you. How will you use this new environment to serve Jesus? Will you selfishly binge endless hours of Netflix? Will you play video games for days on end? Will you rebelliously look for ways to skirt around the guidelines and the rules? Or will you be ready to work in uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus? Paul was put in a position where he had no option. No option but to be locked up. But God gave him opportunities to serve the advancement of the gospel. He got to serve with those who came to visit him. But he also uh, got to serve by writing and sending letters. And he also got to serve by sharing the gospel with the most powerful man in the region. Right now for us, there will be opportunities for us to advance the gospel in our own, and, and to advance our own discipleship. But I ask you to consider how. How will you use your time for Jesus? So we've, we've covered a fair bit of ground today, but I'll just bring it all to a close and just kind of summarize where we've been. We have seen that God, God provided for Paul through providence as he provides for us through providence. It will not always be easy, but we can trust ourselves to him who provides for us. He's provided for us all our lives so far. He will give us what is good and what we need, and he will withhold things from us that we, that we don't need. But in the midst of his providence, we should be ready to serve Jesus. And we should be ready to give a defense. A defense that is confident because the truth is on our side, because God is on our side. We can confidently proclaim the excellencies of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Because they really happened. And Jesus really changes lives. Be ready to give a defense in these uncomfortable circumstances. And thirdly, use your quarantine for Jesus. Use your self-isolation for Jesus. Don't use it to be self-serving. Use it for God, to rest well. Use it to practice obedience to our governing authorities. Use it to love your neighbor. Look for new ways to love your neighbor and use it to practice spiritual disciplines. Friends, Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in a, in a strange new world right now. Many of us have never been anything like this before. And we're still kind of grieving over what we had lost and what we didn't realize we had until it was gone. But now is time to consider and to act for the sake of Christ. To be ready to work in the uncomfortable circumstances for Jesus. After all, this has never been a comfortable faith. Christianity is always meant to be uncomfortable. As we lay down our lives for God, we lay down our own desires to serve one another, we give up ourselves. We may suffer for the gospel, but it is all worth it because it is for our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has a reward in store for all those who give up their lives for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have provided for us so much in providence.
You have given us the roof over our heads, the food in our bellies, the clothes on our back. And Lord, you have given us Jesus Christ. You have given us faith. You have given us opportunities to hear that good news and repent and believe. You have given us opportunities to gather and to be joined into the church. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work through your providence in our lives so that your gospel may go forth to others as well. Lord, help us to be ready to work within your providence in these uncomfortable times for the sake of your glory. Lord, help us. Help us to be ready to give a defense, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, no matter where we find ourselves. Help us, Lord, to to glorify you in the way that we speak about the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be ready and help us to be ready to use our quarantine to serve you, not to serve ourselves, to, to love others, to build others up, to rest, to be obedient to our governing authorities as that you have put in place over us. And to practice those spiritual disciplines that you call us to. Lord, we we thank you and we praise you, even in these troubling times. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.